Zoom, the video communication software used worldwide, has been all over the news lately. Why is this? What happened? Where did this explosion come from? Should you even use Zoom? We're going to explore all these questions today in this episode covering the rise and fall of Zoom, as of, I guess, the last month or so. This episode's going to be split into different parts. Part one is an introduction to the company and its origins. Part two will go through all of its major issues. Part three will be the public response to those issues. Part four is Zoom's response and how they addressed each issue. Part five is my opinion on what to make of all of it. Consider it the summary. And part six is a quick guide and some tips on using Zoom as privately and securely as we can, which doesn't say too much. Before continuing, I wanted to plug that, well, if you're watching from YouTube, this is now offered as a podcast, so you can add the Surveillance Report podcast on several platforms in the description. And if you're watching or listening from the podcast, well, this is on YouTube, which adds some visuals and it will also add some extra context to some things. And also you can subscribe for other content. Not everything that's going on YouTube ends up in the podcast. And yeah, so join us. Part one is the introduction. So Zoom was founded in 2011 by a previous engineer at Cisco, and it actually has semi-humble beginnings, as the idea was inspired by this engineer's long train rides where he was looking for an easier way to communicate with his girlfriend. How romantic. The service launched in 2013, and within six months has over 1 million participants. By mid-2014, they had 10 million users, 2015, 40 million users, as well as some big partnerships and investments with big names, including integration with Slack, Salesforce, and shortly after in 2016, Skype for Business. These integrations and partnerships just kept growing until early 2019 when Zoom went public. I did not know that Zoom ever was a public company. So that was huge news to me. I don't think people really understand how big Zoom is. They've been huge for a long time and they are a very successful company. During the current coronavirus pandemic, people have been forced in both work and schools to engage in telecommuting, which increases demand for services like Zoom significantly. To add some perspective to this, by February 2020, Zoom gained 2.22 million users in 2020, more than it had gained in the entire year of 2019 alone. Daily average users rose from about 10 million in just December of 2019 to 200 million in March of 2020. That's a three-month difference with an extra 190 million users. This is being used by not just schools and companies, but even governments, as the British government went as far to tweet their meeting ID. We're also seeing an influx of new websites being created with the domain name containing Zoom, about 2,000 since the beginning of the year, about 5% of which are estimated to be malicious phishing attempts. All of this attention to higher usage Zoom has received due to coronavirus has led to an increase in the company's stock price, despite the market taking a big hit. So this gives us the rise of Zoom, and frankly, there isn't really a fall yet, at least a measurable one. But I can argue, through all of the issues I'm going to describe in this, that Zoom definitely has had a fall, and it's been exacerbated by their sudden influx of new users. Let's go ahead and cover those issues in the order that they came to light. Our first Zoom issue comes from way back in December of 2018, where Zoom suffered a severe logic flaw vulnerability that affected their clients on all desktop operating systems, allowing an attacker who didn't need to be a meeting attendee to hijack components of a live meeting, such as forcefully enabling desktop control permissions, sending keystrokes, or sharing their screen. In July of 2019, 
A serious zoom zero-day vulnerability allowed websites to hijack macOS cameras. This was because the Zoom program installed a web server on Macs that accepts requests regular browsers wouldn't. And even if you uninstalled Zoom, that web server persisted and could reinstall Zoom without user intervention, although this was never actually utilized. Our first recent issue, meaning 2020, comes from a Harvard blog, which summarizes a few different articles, starting from Mashable on March 13th, revealing some questionable aspects of the Zoom's privacy policy. This is mostly relating to its sharing of data with major companies like Google and other third parties, advertising practices, and inability to opt out of those. Zoom didn't actually do anything directly wrong here, but most of the concerns of Zoom started happening in mid-March, and people finally started to take note, and this is also when they started really growing and gaining traction. Next up, a few days after the Harvard piece was published, Felix a technical lead for a threat analysis company, shared that Zoom's method of installation on macOS works without the user ever having to click install. This in itself is very easy to verify, but the way they do this is by more or less abusing pre-installation scripts through unpacking a bundled 7-zip and installing it directly into the applications folder, assuming the user is in the admin group. Felix adds context and says, yes, this is not strictly malicious by any means, but this technique of bypassing user consent for installation is a trick also used by malware, and it's just not good practice and comes across as really shady. The very next day, it was revealed Zoom meetings aren't end-to-end encrypted, which goes against what all of their marketing says, which states they do use end-to-end encryption. This is on their website, their security white paper, and the UI within the app. However, what they actually offer is just a combination of TCP and UDP connections encrypted with AES. This is similar to an HTTPS website that uses TLS, and it's simply put, referred to as transport encryption, which is very different from end-to-end encryption, because Zoom can access that unencrypted video and audio content of Zoom meetings. In other words, the encryption prevents snooping on your Wi-Fi and other random people who could otherwise peek into your conversations in theory, but it won't prevent Zoom themselves from looking into your conversations. True end-to-end encryption would prevent even Zoom from listening in. This issue not only means that obviously Zoom can peek in, but anyone else they want to peek in as well as a proxy such as people like Google who are referenced in their privacy policy or other third parties or even governments who could request access to sensitive conversations. The worst part about this is probably their very clearly misleading marketing. This isn't just a blog post from five years ago where they misled customers in some weird sketchy marketing campaign. This was littered on their website, their white paper, their apps, and gave customers a complete false sense of security and a false idea of what the product actually does. The only part of Zoom that utilizes proper end-to-end encryption is their in-meeting text chat. This is a serious problem, but is nowhere near the end of Zoom issues. On March 31st, two security researchers found a Zoom bug that could be used to steal Windows passwords thanks to how Zoom handles URLs within its chat. 
Up next, an ex-NSA hacker found two bugs that could take over a Zoom user's Mac, including tapping into their webcam and microphone. Now, I didn't mention that previous sketchy Mac installation for no reason, since the first bug actually relies on that lazy method of installation to infect the computer, since a local attacker with low-level user privileges can inject that Zoom installer with malicious code to obtain root privileges, allowing pretty much full system control to the attacker. The second bug tricks Zoom into giving an attacker the same access to the webcam and microphone that Zoom would normally get with no prompts or user awareness. These are both very serious issues. At this point, most of Zoom's direct issues were security-related, with the main privacy issues being their shady privacy policy. However, that changed on April 1st. And no, it's not a prank. When it was revealed, Zoom was being sued in California for giving users personal data to outside companies, including Facebook, without informing their customers, mostly targeting their iOS app. The other part of the lawsuit states Zoom was paid for sharing user data, although it's not revealed how much they received, and the Zoom CEO denies these allegations to this day. On that same day that all of this came out, Zoom's, quote, company directory setting, which automatically adds other people to a user's list of contacts if they signed up with an email address that shares that same domain, based an issue that revealed people's personal emails that shared that same domain as if they were coworkers. Sorry, that's a little bit messy, so let me explain that. Zoom may have shared, for example, ProtonMail users with each other, assuming they were all part of the same company. So let's say user A, and then you have 100 other users. If user A logged in, they could see all other 100 users. Um, A user reported they could add nearly 1,000 different accounts listed in this directory, and that's just based on how many people joined through that domain. Obviously, they're all strangers, and it revealed their full names, mail addresses, profile pictures, and their statuses. Another user reported 300 exposed profiles through their domain. ProtonMail, like I said, is just an example, and it doesn't seem to have been affected, but some domains unfortunately did slip through the cracks, and that's where this issue came up. The next issue, if you're going by number, is issue 10, and it took place the very next day. The New York Times did an investigation and found there was a data mining feature on Zoom that allowed some participants who were LinkedIn sales navigators to have access to LinkedIn profile data from other users without A, Zoom asking for that permission during the meeting, or even B, notifying the person that they were being snooped on, so the person didn't know that this happened. The analysis showed that when people signed into a meeting, Zoom software automatically sent their names and email addresses to a company system it used to match them with their LinkedIn profiles, which is scary enough without the ability for people to get this data without your awareness. This is a good example for why compartmentalization is very important with your emails and accounts online. Zoom was hit hard these days, but the scrutiny did not stop. Since on April 3rd, the very next day, the Citizen Lab rolled out their findings on Zoom. The first part of the report works off of the encryption concerns we talked about earlier, but with a new side to it. First, Zoom claims AES-256 encryption, but in all Zoom meetings they tested, a single AES-128 key was used by all participants to encrypt and decrypt audio and video. This is already a concern, but the second concern is they use something called ECB mode, which apparently is not recommended because patterns presented in plain text are preserved during the encryption process. Unfortunately, I do not understand this, but it is a problem. Issue 12, which adds to this damage, the AES-128 key appears to be generated by Zoom servers and in some cases were delivered to participants in a Zoom meeting through servers in China. 
even when all meeting participants and the Zoom subscribers' company are based outside of China. They did some more digging and found that Zoom, despite being based in San Jose, California, owns three companies in China where they have 700 employees developing its software. This is rumored to be done to avoid paying U.S. wages to increase their profit margins at the cost of possible pressure from Chinese authorities. The report goes into the details of why Zoom is a high-priority target for Signal's intelligence, and the fact they're based in China is definitely not a good sign, since the Chinese government is known to conduct extensive industrial espionage, not to mention their required data retention policies. And, funny enough, just a few hours after the Citizen Lab research was published, Zoom's CEO stepped forward and confirmed the Chinese allegations. The reasoning for doing this was because of server overload during the high spike usage period due to coronavirus. So if their North American servers were overloaded, they'd keep moving new meetings down the row, and eventually China was one of their backups. There was a separate whitelisting issue that was also causing this more frequently than it should have. This PSA from the CEO failed to really address the cryptography concerns mentioned in a security paper, mostly just saying it's something they'll look into, not much beyond that. And the final issue we'll discuss today. Zoom got a few days off from their public scrutiny until finally on April 6th, where it was discovered Zoom videos have been left viewable on the open web. Many videos were recorded through Zoom software and saved onto an online storage space without a password. This isn't actually specifically a Zoom issue. It's an issue with call hosts that recorded and uploaded these videos on their own to public spaces. However, Zoom names every video recording in an identical way, so a simple search online can reveal a long list of videos anyone could download and watch. Zoom has urged call hosts to be aware of what they're doing and to respect user privacy. That, my friends, summarizes all Zoom issues as of today. Before we go into part four, which goes into Zoom's responses and changes to each of them, let's go and cover part three, which covers what people around the world are doing to respond to these issues and what kind of public scrutiny and effects it had on the world. To start, on March 30th, the New York Attorney General's office expressed concern over Zoom's security issues in a letter to the video conferencing company. The very next day, after hearing about Zoom bombings, which is an attack where a random stranger joins the meeting to share typically explicit content, it's normally just through guessing different meeting IDs. It's very hard to prevent this kind of attack. It's mostly up to people to set passwords to prevent this. Either way, it's an issue, and the FBI spoke publicly about concerns with Zoom, quoting, especially since about 60% of Fortune 500 companies use apps like Zoom, which I thought is a very, very crazy way to look at it. Over half of Fortune 500 companies use this software. It's an insane figure to think about. A few days later, Zoom bombing was warned by federal prosecutors from the Department of Justice to be a federal offense that could result in imprisonment in an attempt to discourage people from doing this as a prank. That same day, Representative Jerry McKerney, along with 18 other Democratic colleagues from the House Committee on Energy and Commerce, sent a letter to Zoom's CEO raising concerns and questions over their privacy practices. On April 7th, a lawsuit was filed in San Francisco, accusing Zoom of making false and misleading statements about its products, mainly attacking the end-to-end -end encryption claims, which we have discussed before were false. The lawsuit also alleges that Zoom's security failures put users, quote, at an increased risk of having their personal information accessed by unauthorized parties, including Facebook. Those were the main direct responses that I found. So yes, there are people speaking up against Zoom. 
There are also the people, organizations, and governments who have banned its use due to all of these concerns. This list currently includes big names like the Australian Defense Force, Berkeley Unified School District, the Canadian government, Clark County School District, German Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Google, NASA, New York City Department of Education, Singapore Ministry of Education, Smart Communications, SpaceX, the Taiwanese government, UK Ministry of Defense, and the United States Senate. That covers all the notable reactions we've seen. We'll cover if this is an over or under exaggeration soon, but to answer that question, it's important for us to know how many of these issues were fixed, how they were handled, and how proactive Zoom is really being when it comes to these concerns. So I present to you part four, how Zoom responded to all of this. Their first issue was their logic flaw vulnerability, and it was patched recently after its discovery. The second problem was the macOS camera hijack zero-day vulnerability, which was patched within a day of its publicity. Number three was a collective concern over Zoom's privacy policy. They have made some changes, and that should be addressed. This is a good move. However, there are still some definite issues involving their data collection that should still raise some eyebrows. So this issue has some improvements, but it's still an issue. The fourth problem has to do with their lazy and very malware-like installation process on macOS. I couldn't find a clear answer on whether this has officially been changed, but I assume it has since Patrick Wardle, the person who used this as an exploit to gain unauthorized access like we discussed earlier, says the issue is patched in Zoom version 4.6.9. Issue number five was the revelation they don't use end-to-end encryption. Outside of a PSA about it, they haven't taken any action towards this outside they're looking into it. This is still, to this day, an equally valid and open issue. Number six was the Zoom bug that affected Windows machines allowing for the possibility of stealing Windows passwords. Zoom released version, get ready for this, 4.6.1925.3.0401 of their client that prevents this issue from happening, making this fixed. Issue 7 we already covered since it's Patrick Wardle's extension of Issue 4, and like I said, it was patched, so the two bugs he discovered no longer work. Problem 8 concerned Zoom's privacy practices when it comes to their data sharing with third-party companies, Facebook being the main highlight in their iOS app. They did cut out Facebook from the iOS app and made some changes to their privacy policy. Do they still share data with companies? Yes. Did they make improvements? Yes, so this is still an open issue, but with improvements that have been made. Number nine was Zoom's company directory setting that made some people using the same email domain publicly visible to others. Now, this is technically a feature, and any mistakes in the blacklist are just mistakes. Their way of addressing this problem is up to users. A user needs to submit a request to their support team and let them know if their domain shouldn't be listed. I'd consider this a pretty terrible and near non-existent true solution, and I'm leaving this as an open issue with little to no improvement. Issue 10 was the LinkedIn profile leaks, and this feature was altogether removed from the platform, meaning it's been fixed. Problem 11 was an extension of the end-to-end encryption issue. First, they were not utilizing AES-256 encryption, and they were also using ECB mode. These appear to not have been improved at all since their publicity. Number 12 are all the Chinese concerns, both through company management and the redirection of customer data through China. They did fix a Chinese whitelisting issue, which may help, and they've made it so paying customers can choose to not have their data go through China. But the overall issue is still there, at least for free users. So they made improvements, but really it's negligible. 
At the end of the day, they have 700 employees in China and own three Chinese companies, and still will route some users through Chinese servers. So this really hasn't changed much. And finally, issue 13 was the videos that were being uploaded by Zoom hosts. Again, this isn't necessarily Zoom's fault, since it's people recording these and uploading them themselves. The issue was that Zoom named all video files in a similar fashion, allowing an easy method for people to use search engines to find all of these public videos and more or less just mass download and view them. Zoom did fix their video naming scheme, so this issue is fixed to the extent that Zoom can fix it. And that just addressed the specific issues we talked about. Zoom has actually implemented some other improvements that weren't really necessary to make, to be perfectly honest. So these I'd consider to be proactive changes they've made that are kind of just extra credit. They've made waiting rooms the default to prevent Zoom bombing and calls. They've freezed the introduction of new features to focus on security and privacy issues. They're planning on conducting reviews with third parties to improve their issues. They're preparing a transparency report that details information related to data, records, or content. They're improving their bug bounty program. They're engaging a series of simultaneous penetration tests to identify and address issues. And they started a weekly webinar to provide privacy and security updates to their community. Keep in mind, most of these are works in progress, and we have yet to see their direct impact on the service as a whole. In fact, most of these are supposed to take course over a 90-day period, so we have quite a while to wait to even see them fully in effect. Next up is part five. What do we make of all this? This is really hard to analyze, and obviously this section is more or less my opinion because... I'm sure some of you will think, wow, I'm never going to touch a Zoom in my life, and some of you maybe are a little bit more optimistic about the service. So let's get into it. Zoom does not have a clean history. You're looking at almost a Facebook tier history in terms of the number and severity of issues, especially considering the shorter amount of time. However, we aren't seeing the real world effects anywhere near as much as you'd see versus something like Facebook, which has had countless breaches, user information publicly shared, and just millions of people directly screwed over because of it. Zoom is, in my opinion, a classic company that seems to have been built focusing on the product, with security and privacy as an afterthought, which nowadays is kind of what you do. I, I don't agree with it, but that's kind of how things work nowadays, especially startups who don't have many resources to focus on these issues. Looking at raw numbers, out of the 13 issues Zoom faced in this episode, seven, so over half of them, have been fully fixed. Three of them have had improvements made, and overall Zoom is responding to their criticisms, and for the most part, acting to fix its issues. Before tearing them open a new one, as if we haven't already done that, I want to give them credit because they are handling this better than many other companies might. Now the main issue with Zoom is they have some underlying issues that are either never going to be fixed or will take a huge amount of effort to be fixed. For example, a huge part of their company has ties to China, 700 employees, three companies, and a backup plan that sends its users through Chinese servers. I don't think this is ever going to change. It's clear they built themselves up in China and it's going to be an issue for years to come. I'd love to be proven wrong for their own sake, but I just don't see it happening. The larger concern, in my opinion, about the Chinese side of things is the Zoom CEO is pretty shy to talk about it, which I find a bit suspicious and a good sign they don't have many plans to improve or do much about this, especially considering he's actually been pretty public about all the other issues and addressed them pretty directly, except this one. Additionally, the fact they are only offering paid users to opt out of Chinese servers is just plain wrong and unethical. 
The other big issue is their lack of end-to-end -end encryption. They're playing this off like, oh, we're just going to look into it and fix it, when in reality, this is going to require a complete reworking of how calls and meetings are conducted on the backend, not to mention transitioning all users to using these new protocols. This isn't simply a feature release they will likely be able to do in a few weeks like they're playing it off to be. This is a serious issue. The other side of this is that they've been misleading millions of people for a long period of time, claiming they implement end-to-end -end encryption when they simply don't. It's complete BS. It's great they're being sued for this. I don't know what could be a better example of false advertising outside maybe the Big Mac in the photo versus real life. And even that, I don't know if it compares to this. I can't imagine blatantly lying about encryption and just misleading people through actual technical white papers saying you implement something when you don't. It's just wrong. The last major issue, even though they did improve their privacy policy, it still is nowhere near perfect. They seem to have a business model reliant on data collection as well as data sharing with third parties, which, I mean, everything seems to point to despite what their CEO says. This seems to be a root issue in the company, and it'll likely require a very large overhaul on their end to remain a profitable and thriving company. I mean, how else do you think they offer a free tier that is more than enough for the average user? In my opinion, the other issues we discussed are actually fairly common issues with large popular services like Zoom. In fact, some of them, like the URL chat issue, affected Skype as well, but no one talked about that. You have vulnerabilities, you have attacks, exploits. These are pretty normal with most companies, although the number of them in such a short amount of time is alarming. But I do want to give some perspective here. Zoom just recently gained a large amount of users. There likely weren't many people looking and investigating their security practices, and then out of nowhere, they find a huge part of the world is looking for every possible mistake they've ever made. I could make an argument that considering the circumstances, Zoom could have done a lot worse. Think about it. A company serving millions of a new influx set of customers all around the world that didn't even implement proper encryption, and there was no widespread data breach of its customers or major direct effect on them. I'd say these are relatively normal issues, but... And here's where they went wrong. They're very preventable issues, and it's clear it wasn't a priority of theirs. Hopefully this will change. Only time will tell. They seem to be taking the right steps by improving their bug bounty, more pen testing, and getting more audits done. So we'll see if maybe this just hasn't been a priority and they can fix it, or if they're just inherently never going to fix these issues. I do think it's a valid argument that Zoom definitely got the hardest possible scenario in terms of public scrutiny, and they survived it. They are acting and responding to it, and quite frankly, if you look at their stocks and how they're performing as a company, they're killing it right now. I don't want this to overshadow their issues, because there are plenty, but I do want to add some perspective on this, because Zoom seems to be getting it worse than companies like Facebook, who I believe are causing a lot more damage to society than Zoom is, but the media doesn't seem to care about that as much. So my TLDR. Zoom has problems. We should keep getting on their behinds and push them to fix it. That's our job. Everything they've already fixed was a result of criticism, so keep it up, world. But let's take that criticism and apply it to other companies and other issues. Why does the media take such a great interest in attacking Zoom when other much larger companies are doing worse things than they are? 
Or why are people concerned with Zoom possibly sharing data with the Chinese government when they're okay with the US government setting up tracing surveillance on every citizen established through companies like Google and Apple? Um, these aren't really meant to have an answer, they're open-ended questions, but I'd like you to think about them. And finally, my friends, we are in part six. Uh, the final section of this video is going to cover how to use Zoom semi-privately and securely-ish. I say semi and ish because we're dealing with a naturally insecure and unprivate service, as this, what, 30 to 40 minute video has explained. First, I want to cover my technique, and I actually want people to critique this because I'm not actually sure how effective it is, but I'm going to give you my theory and what I've been doing, and I'd like you to comment on what you think about it. So your two options on tuning in to these streams, well, actually three. One, you can use the website. Uh, they don't make it clear, but you can actually click the download button or the skip download button, and they do allow you to tune in through their online website. The second option is through their desktop program. I guess the third option would be a mobile app. And then the fourth option is calling in. What I've been doing, because I go to college, which some of you don't know, um, and my college still uses Zoom, unfortunately, I've been calling into all of my meetings. And normally, if you just call in, they actually show your phone number to everybody. Um, this is already, in my opinion, an improvement because the only personal information is your phone number that they see. So you don't have to verify an account. You don't have to register for their account. All you have to do is call the Zoom number, type in the meeting ID, and you're in the meeting. Um, but to add in a layer to this, what I've been doing is I've been start. So at least in the US, you can actually hide your caller ID using star six, seven. And at least that's a California thing. I don't know if all of the US has that. But as far as I know, most countries and most zones have a way to hide your caller ID with some kind of code that goes before the number. So what I've been doing is I've been doing star six, seven before the phone number. And then when I tune into the meeting, Zoom doesn't have any personal information on me. Now, obviously this has limitations. One, the largest one is you can't see screen sharing. You can't see people's face. There's no video and all it is is audio. Um, for my classes and what I've been doing, this is plenty and it's all I need. The second issue is security and privacy is obviously, a, there's a threat model to it and there are definitely limitations to this. First, most people add your email and they invite you to these meetings and you have to get that meeting ID in some way, shape or form. So most likely you were added by email or some other contact method to the meeting, even if you didn't tune into the meeting using that exact contact information. Normally, there's still some indirect link to you within that same meeting. Third, there's obviously direct data they could collect. If you talk in the meeting, for example, there is a possibility they collected that in some way, shape, or form. Now, tying that to a person and an identity is a different story. Um, I guess if you're really paranoid, you could use a voice changer or something of that nature, or maybe change your speech habits. But we're talking about like state actor prevention techniques if we're going that far. So my personal experience, I started off, like I said, I just called into my meetings um, and people were saying in meetings that they could see my full phone number. So that is obviously a no-go. Then I did a star six, seven, and I put in the phone number, typed in the meeting ID, and pretty much from personal experience, all it shows is user one or whatever user number you are. This was, I guess, effective to the point where I almost got kicked out of a meeting because people thought I was a Zoom bomber. So <laughs> that was kind of a frantic moment where I was like, no, 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 don't cut me out. But also I think it's a good sign that if the people don't know who you are, it's going to be pretty hard for Zoom to tell as well. 
Um, but I would like to know, because I'm not very familiar, if using star six seven actually would fully hide your caller ID. So if someone has more context into this, please let me know, because I'm also looking for better methods. Now, this all applied to phone-only things. So what if you actually do need to use your video and you need to screen share? What do you do? We haven't gotten to this yet and go incognito, but pretty much it's all about pseudonyms and it's all about offloading personal information into, into other means. So you make it harder and harder for Zoom to tie pieces of data to your personal identity. This means using emails that aren't tied to your personal identity. Maybe you can set up a Zoom-only email through ProtonMail to Denota or whatever other email provider you want. Just make sure it's limited to just Zoom. Make sure you're implementing proper security habits, just like any other service. Don't use the same password. Make sure that you're using two-factor authentication. I don't even know if Zoom has two-factor authentication. I don't have an account. I've just been calling into all my meetings. That's another perk, by the way, of calling into meetings. You don't have to open a Zoom account. Um, if you want to take things a step up, um, try to avoid downloading your desktop programs and stick to just the site. The desktop programs are just an extra avenue of attack, and it's just another way for them to collect extra information about you. So if you stick to the website, not only is there less information to collect, but also you can harden that browser and make sure that that browser can minimize some of that information that they do collect through their browser. As always, you can use things like VPNs. You could use Tor, I guess, but Tor is probably going to be pretty slow and really decrease your latency in these calls, so I'm not sure I'd recommend Tor. It's also pro probably really heavy on the Tor network, so you're being kind of selfish to use Tor for something like this unless you absolutely need it. So use a VPN or a proxy if you're looking to just hide your IP address from Zoom. And... If you want to take things a step further, you obviously can start using things like virtual machines. So you can set up a virtual machine that's just a plain stock virtual machine with nothing that's personally identifiable inside of it. And you're, you're rocking. It's all about creating threat model, what you actually want to protect yourself against. Those summarize some just quick tips I have. If you want a more in-depth guide, let me know. And also, if you're on YouTube, leave in the comments your techniques that you've been using to use Zoom. I know that there's going to be people watching this who have had to use Zoom, so why don't you share what you've been doing? And if you're in the podcast, um, join on YouTube discussions, or you can email me. But yeah, I'd like to hear what you all are doing. I could also use tips myself. That, everybody, concludes my very, very long analysis and thoughts on Zoom. This took a long time to put together, and it's taking a long time of your day to watch. So I want to thank anyone who's actually watched this whole damn episode. You are awesome. If you've gotten this far, please consider donating to our channel. We accept Monero. You can find information on the support page on our website at techlore.tech to figure out how to do that. We accept bat tips through Brave Rewards that can be accessed on our YouTube channel page or on the website as well. And we also have a Patreon where you gain access to some exclusive things in our community with the highest here, the Golden Crown Safaka, guaranteeing you time every month to chat one-on-one -on -one with me if people want to do that. I don't even know if that's a desirable thing, but it's there. Seriously, everyone, thank you for watching this monster episode and enjoy your time during lockdown. This is a special opportunity we have to reconnect with ourselves without the normal day-to-day -day stress, for most of us at least. If you are one of those people fighting on the front lines, we appreciate you and all the work you're doing. Stay safe, people, and sending everyone love from California.